0: Welcome back. This is your host, Kurt Bear, and I'm honored to share with you today my conversation with Ginger Graham, known locally as the founder of Ginger and & Baker and as the wife of former CSU football star and later athletic director Jack Graham. Longtime Boulder residents, Ginger and Jack fell in love with Fort Collins and own and operate the finest coffee shop, pie shop, cafe, fine dining, and event space in the region. However, Ginger has an expansive business journey that will come as a surprise to many of our listeners. Born to humble beginnings in rural northwest Arkansas, Ginger took a leap of faith early in her career and got an MBA from Harvard Business School. Our conversation journeys through a high-impact career that culminated in her becoming CEO of a medical product company known as Advanced Cardiovascular Systems, at a time when women, and especially young women, never got such jobs, and taking it public as Guidant Corporation, growing it from 1,900 people to 14,000 employees across the globe along the way. Ginger is a highly intelligent, remarkably humble, and incredibly kind person for sharing her time and inspiring story with me and our listeners, and I hope you'll tune in.
1: Let's have some fun.
0: Welcome to the Loco Experience Podcast. On this show, you'll get to know business and community leaders from all around Northern Colorado and beyond. Our guests share their stories, business stories, life stories, stories of triumph and of tragedy, and through it all you'll be inspired and entertained. These conversations are real and raw, and no topics are off limits. So pop in a breath mint and get ready to meet our latest guest. Welcome back to the Loco Experience podcast. This is your host, Kurt Baer, and I'm just honored to be here today with Ginger Graham. Ginger is the founder and owner along with her husband, Jack of Ginger and Baker here in Fort Collins. And they are happy and joyful Fort Collins residents of about 11 years now. So Ginger, talk to me about when Jack first indicated he was gonna be moving the family or at least himself initially to Fort Collins. What was that like for you and where were you coming from?
2: Well, we lived in Boulder for 15 years before Fort Collins and before that in the Bay Area and Both of us have lived in many places. I've lived all over the US and Jack's business career had him in London a lot and Bermuda. Mm, Wow. So we've had the opportunity to be in many beautiful cities and wonderful places in the world and we just love Fort Collins. But Jack had sold his business in Boulder and the president of CSU had approached him about potentially Mm. taking over as athletic director at CSU. So, you know, Jack was a football player. Had a great experience here. Their team was number one in the country Mm. in passing yards that That year. That helps get
0: the donors reengaged and things like that.
2: And uh, eight of them were drafted into the NFL, including Jack. So he always had very fond memories of his time here. Kept in touch. You know, we came to football games occasionally. And then he was approached to come and help. Uh, generate interest to see if they could have an on-campus stadium Mm. which was kind of fun because jack played football when it was brand new at hughes
3: Mm. and
2: then you know 50 years later plus you come back and the concrete's broken it's sinking into the earth out there there's no hot water in the bathrooms it's a very old facility not well maintained unfortunately and was not a good tool to recruit or to excite people about being a part of CSU. Yeah, And so he really came with a passion to help CSU wow. continue a on its project, path. a big project, right? Like oh, no guarantees word.
0: when you take a job like that.
2: That's right. And of course, everything in college athletics is so high profile mm. and so contentious, unfortunately, when it's really all about the students and their education and their great experience yeah. Uh, that schools support for them to see how far they can go athletically. Yeah. So he loved that job. We enjoyed it very much and fell in love with Fort Collins, and so we're still here.
0: Awesome. Well, we're so glad to have you, and and I'm honored, uh, really, that you would share time. And I saw a little video that you shared with me about your career in medicine and in corporate and tech, and I just had no idea you were such an accomplished <laughs> business veteran. And I think you keep that a secret so much, and I've. I've had more than a handful of people recommend that you be on the show and so um That's nice. Yeah, thanks for sharing your time. You bet. I want to like maybe meet young Ginger. Tell me oh, uh, uh yeah. and is that close to your natural hair color Are yeah. you that gingery?
2: Yes, uh I am fortunate that Ginger was my name. My mom's name was Virginia. Ah. So I was going to be Ginger no matter what. And I was born bald, so she used to tell stories that she would use K-Rose syrup and stick a bow to my head because I didn't have hair. But uh, there's red-headed jeans in the family, so lucky me.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it becomes you quite well. Thank and you. It's, uh, it's a blessing of a name to have it that way. Nobody ever forgot your name.
2: Well, it's, it's really true, and I loved my name. My whole life I've loved my name because it's unique, mm-hmm. and there aren't... Other people. And now I get a big kick at Ginger and Baker because we chose to use my name and the ingredient as part of the name. Uh, People will have this moment of reckoning where I meet them, I tell them who I am, they look at me, they look at the sign, they think a minute, and you can see it all unfold for them that, oh, you are a person, you are Ginger, you are. You're uh,
0: extra ginger. Yeah,
2: and then it's the business. So it's very fun to watch yeah, people yeah. put all that together.
0: It's funny. I just saw somebody today at the coffee shop over at uh, Genesis Coffee, and he was in a staff meeting with four people. And he's, he hey, Bear, how's it going? He introduced me to his whole staff. I have no idea who he was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but
4: well, it's you're the, famous, well, Kurt. Well, I'm s- Fort
0: Collins famous <laughs> a little bit, but, but Bear. You know, everybody like it, it's easy name recognition. Just yes. like like your ginger for almost everybody that's ever met you. I'm even though I go by Kurt, I don't go by Bear, but everybody reminds hmm. remembers Bear.
2: Yes, well, it's actually a great aid in my career that a first name basis. Yeah, and so I've always been known by my first name which is fine with me and it does have a lasting memory attachment easier for people they remember my name
0: so where was this little bald baby
2: born (laughs) well my uh, parents raised their family in arkansas so i'm from northwest arkansas the ozarks a beautiful part of the world if you ever get to go there and they were uh, rural america so my dad was a mailman my mom kept books for the Ford Motor Company dealership in town. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: She also
2: babysat children. She made birthday cakes for people for money. So they were just trying to make a living. And uh, there are two of us uh, born in Springdale, my older brother and I, and then my family had a way of gathering. So my uh, four cousins lived not too far away. My Mm -hmm. mom helped care for them and she babysat children my dad's oldest uh, sister is 20 years older than his youngest sister. Right. So the younger aunt and uncle lived with us when I was a child. My aunt lived with us for almost 13 years. Wow! So it was like having an older sister. My parents also kept foster children. And uh, my younger brother is an important addition to our family as uh, he was adopted when I was in Oh, great school. Wow. And so the tent was very big yeah. in my family. Sometimes
0: people coming in. Yes,
2: and my parents fed everyone, cared wow. for everyone, uh, really committed themselves to the community in so many ways. Yeah. So I grew up in that small town America where being on a farm, you always had food yep. and you could always share food. And that really forms a lot of my commitment to community and hospitality is that idea that we share what we have and we're all in it together.
0: When the Matthews house was building their community life centers, they toured some of the country and they looked at these like community models. And I can't quite remember the, the name, but it's almost like that was a a spontaneous community house of sorts, like have need come here. Yes. My parents
2: were good at that. They loaned our vehicles to people that were in (laughs) trouble. They, you know, gathered up clothes my mom took food to everyone if you had a baby or you were sick or you moved or any kind of event happened in your life we were packing up food To take to someone else and that's a large part of the pie story for me is Mm. my job was to make pie crust on weekends and freeze them for mom so she could take a pie to people and that sense of extending yourself helping others and
0: whatever fruit is in season
2: exactly (laughs) it's local it's seasonal it's handmade it's made with love it's an extension of sharing Mm. and it's a community food so i consider pie to be a metaphor for building community and investing in those around you.
0: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I'm sure you share that here and there and it's been part of your drive, but I just to hear you tell it as part of that deeper story. It's just really lovely to share. So tell me about young young Ginger. Like were you with all this hubbub going along or were you always extroverted? Were you a high achiever? Were you into athletics or school? What kind of community was this overall, like the county or the city nearby and things? Well,
2: it's very much rural America. So we lived on a dirt road way out in the country. Now it doesn't seem so far, but back then it seemed like a long way. We bused to school, so there was a very large school system in Springdale, Arkansas, and all the country kids from small towns all around went there to school. And it was a great school system. They had every kind of activity you could imagine. So... I did do everything I could. I was a junior miss. I was in honor society. I was a cheerleader. I was on the gymnastics team and lettered in high school in gymnastics. But a big part of our life was the rural American life. So it was a family farm. Mm -hmm. We grew a very significant portion of what we ate, including Mm. the beef cattle and the chickens, that kind of thing. Alongside Uh,
0: being a mailman and a bookkeeper and all these things. Yes, my
2: dad would get up at some crazy hour in the morning in the dark and go to work. And then when he got home, he would Uh, work as a farmer. Wow. And so we canned like crazy in the summer. Uh, It was really you know, the hard life that my parents lived. But I did not understand how fragile our economic situation was as children. Because we always had food and Mm -hmm. our parents were in the community and sharing is part of that so i really grew up you know small town rural america dirt road grow your own food make your own clothes husbandry yes all of those things and a big part of rural america of course with agriculture are animals Mm -hmm. and for me it was horses i was Mm. a horse addict from day one (laughs) i had shetland ponies when i was a kid and then graduated to full-size horses And 4-H was a big part of our lives. My mom helped organize 4-H, and my dad was a big leader. Uh, And so we as children were 4-H participants, which meant you could learn to groom cattle for showing or compete with a horse, uh, canning, sewing. I competed in all those things. I just
0: had Anne Hutchison on, and she uh, did judging with 4-H. I bet.
2: I bet. Yes, well, it's a big part of rural America's sense of... Helping children see the world and experience different things and yeah. learn new skills. Yeah, and so 4-H was very important to our family, as was church camp. It was very. My parents were very involved in a small community church, and camp was a big part of that, mm-hmm. uh, and just in general rodeo. So what rodeo was. What
0: were the four was, H's? Can you name them? Oh,
2: head, heart, hands, and health.
0: Okay, boom. <laughs> that was easy. I, I was like head, heart.
2: <laughs> yes, but it. Is a framework, you know, for children to engage sure. and to learn to compete and to learn skills. I thought it was a very valuable activity. Well, and
0: think about how profound those are. I mean, your head is, you know, get your head right, mm. uh, be logical and reasonable. Hands, you know, that's your, that's your actions. The heart, you know, how you care about each other. And health mm. is the, the only thing that you can't really buy.
2: Yes, that's true. You cannot buy. You can't invest in. Yes. But uh, you do get a set of cards dealt to you, and then you make choices your whole life. But I do feel like that integration in community, you know, because, of course, 4-H were bands of kids that lived in proximity to each other. So out on that dirt road, all the neighbor's kids were in the same 4-H. We rode horses together in the summer bareback down the dirt roads and— We rode the school bus together to school and we went to 4-H together. So it was part of your community building.
0: Yeah, for sure. And was Springdale uh, itself, was that a large community?
2: It was very small. I think when I was a a very young child, it was about 5,000 people. Okay. But it's always fun to be a mailman's daughter because everybody knows who you are. (laughs) (laughs) But it grew and today it's the home of Tyson's Chicken. Oh. The Tysons are from there. And it's also next door to Walton's and Sam and oh, Walmart. Wow. It's next door so to
0: kind of JB Hunt. Region.
2: So, Northwest Arkansas now is the home to a number of Fortune 500 companies. Sure. And we knew all of those families, <laughs> but of course, a long time ago, uh, they weren't considered to be the icons. They were right. just members of the community. Walmart
0: had seven stores in the western or northwestern part of Arkansas at the time, or whatever. Yes, right? it was
2: really still small town America, and so uh. I like to tell the story that you know my dad bought his truck the same place Sam Walton did. That's what communities were built of. It yeah. wasn't about your income or status. Yeah, you went to church, you attended the parade, you supported the rodeo. Yeah. Your kids were in 4-H. We all went to public you school get, you get together. You give what you
0: can and. Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting thing. It has definitely that I guess the social media element of the world has magnified that status seeking kind of behavior that has always existed.
2: You know, I am I'm not a social scientist, but I have been struck by a book called Coming Apart that mm. is written to describe what's changed in many ways socially since the 50s and 60s where we all did live in every socioeconomic rung in the same community and we all participated together and how over time in this country we're beginning to come apart we move by gated communities and certain people go to certain schools and uh, I for one love Fort Collins because we are still a community we still have every socioeconomic uh, range we have every profession we have Many generational local businesses, we still have investment and commitment to our community regardless of our means. Yeah, And I hope we work really hard to keep
0: that. Uh, I agree 100%. And that's actually one of the key reasons. I I moved to Fort Collins in 99, and then my wife and I moved to Windsor and then to Colorado Springs and came back in 07. Um, And one of the notable differences and one of the reasons we came back was Colorado Springs was like... You know, here's the Broadmoor District, here's the Fountain, uh, here's Fort Carson, here's the the tech where the tech people live, here's where the, you know, the Christians live around here. And it was just all these segmented elements of, it wasn't one community of Colorado Springs, it was adjacent people groups. Well, it's Uh, a
2: challenge, I think, for human nature. You know, we, we love to be with people like us, who reinforce us, who think like us, who support how we think and one of the great gifts i think in my raising and in my life is i've repeatedly been in situations with people where i am not like them yeah. i've never heard of them i didn't know that existed and i didn't live there before i don't know anyone and i hope it's uh you know made me a better person i feel like yeah. it has And I hope Fort Collins continues to be that community where everyone's welcome and everyone plays a role and everyone is called to give back because that's how we stay together.
0: I think that's uh, one of my kind of special things, and I suspect yours as well, is that not just willingness to, but desire to engage with people different than me.
2: Yes, it's more interesting so for much sure. more yeah. And I, I say to so many people who come to Ginger and Baker that are new to town, moving here, just moved, thinking about moving, I, I try to enthusiastically describe what Fort Collins means to us, but say to them, but if you move here, you have to join in. You have to show up. You have to be engaged. You have to meet other people. You have to seek to learn. You have to learn Fort Collins. Don't bring where you came from with you. Invest in this place and be it. Because we definitely don't want to, over time, be separate. We want to be Fort Collins.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, So tell me about... Post high school, you were involved in a lot of 4-H doing these things, community building along the way a little bit, and your, your family was, of course. Um, you head off to school, and I remember you have an agricultural economics degree, which is the same as my own.
2: Oh, how fun. I do, and it was unusual for a girl to do that at the time, but I was born i think thinking i was going to be a veterinarian mm. so i did pre vet school which required i had to go out of state it was very expensive for my family and then i spent a year working for a veterinarian mm. it was at the same time i was miss rodeo arkansas which Ooh. is a was a fun time in my life to be an ambassador for a sport i loved so i took a semester off and worked for a vet and did the rodeo thing and i realized i didn't really want to be a veterinarian that wasn't uh professionally going to be as gratifying for me yeah. it's a struggle i think back then farmers didn't expect that women should be on the farm doing and seeing certain things mm. so there was a lot of pushback about participation oh. and it was economically very challenging as well new veterinarians were literally living in the vet's office on the couch and making 300 bucks a month. And so I knew that that wasn't gonna work for me sustaining a life. So I decided to switch and went to the University of Arkansas, which was just next door from where I Mm, was raised. They have a land grant school, just like CSU, a giant agriculture school, just like CSU. And uh, I loved it there. And of course had the benefit of being able to live at home and commute to school, which was economically doable for my family.
0: May they wasted a the year of pre-vet. Uh,
2: yes, I know. i like. always felt guilty about having yeah. asked my parents to send me out of state. But you don't know yeah. until you try. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson for young people of all types is you can't possibly know what you want to do yeah. because you haven't done it yet. And so many careers today didn't exist when I came out of college. How could we have known all the choices and all the opportunities that people would have so the idea of embracing the opportunity and saying yes to opportunities and jumping into things you don't know i feel like is a very important life skill yeah i very much agree i was lucky you know that uh, my family really supported that yeah they were always saying you can do anything you want their only expectation was they would like for us to be good people so they didn't care what we did my mom always told people i was going to be the first secretary of agriculture <laughs> which did not work out but i did I end a up time, maybe. <laughs> well there's already been a woman secretary of agriculture oh, well, so, so that there's of the joy in yeah. that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes but i did get a lot of encouragement to pursue things that excited me and yeah. ended up in the school of agriculture and an advisor recommended the economic side of the mm. industry which i had never Uh, experience, didn't know anything about, and I fell in love with it. Hmm. So that yielded a great degree from a good, good school. And they worked very hard to make sure that you got job interviews and you had opportunities. So that worked out great. I got a wonderful job offer from a company called Elanco coming out of college, which was at the time the largest agriculture chemical company in the world. And they put me to work selling herbicides to soybean and cotton farmers.
0: Ooh. I want to linger back in the college days just a little bit. Were you? Did you remain involved in 4-H? Were you kind of had to transition more to the, the Miss Rodeo kind of obligations in that <laughs> circuit? was there horse riding contests or different things that you still did during you know, that time? You know, I
2: didn't compete as much. Uh, I was really trying to get an education, so I took very heavy loads. I had two or three part-time jobs all the way through school, mm-hmm. Uh, because it was a burden on my family. My brother was also in college, Mm -hmm. and he was getting a pharmacy Mm -hmm. degree. And so we uh, benefited from our parents being very committed to the fact that we would have an education. Neither one of them had the opportunity to go to college. So they were committed that we would, and I think we over-participated. He has a PharmD, and I have a master's degree. We really did buy into the education and it has been life changing for yeah, both of us, for
0: sure, for sure.
2: But I was involved as you know in a uh, limited number of things. I wrote uh, in the journalism department for oh. the what they called it an internal house organ. It was all of the custodial and facilities had their own newsletter, so I wrote their newsletter. Oh. Uh, I worked part time for a radio station.
0: Oh
4: really? Uh,
2: I did some writing for a newspaper, so I had a journalism minor that okay. really interested me. And, you know, along the way, just whatever I could to to contribute to my education. And then I was a member of the Honor Society. I worked at the football games. We were so uh, big back then in the Southwest Conference. Mm -hmm. And it was Eddie Sutton and Lou Holtz were the two big coaches, one for basketball, one for football. Both were NCAA coaches of the year. So sports were huge and I worked concession stands and that kind of thing yeah. to help out at the university, but a lot of my effort was to really get an education and work.
0: Yeah, yeah. and obviously get good grades and things like that yes. too. It seems like yes, you're the uh, overachiever that every teacher <laughs> and every parent is hoping for. Um, so you said you started your career was Landco. Elanco. Elanco mm-hmm. selling. Chemicals and fertilizers. Yes, it was
2: herbicides Herbicides. for soybean and cotton farmers. So I had the opportunity to move to the Mississippi Delta area, the northeast part of Arkansas, and call on some of the largest soybean and cotton farmers in the world. And that was a real education because I had no row crop experience, only Mm. animal health. And my degree, of course, was biased with pre-vet toward animal health. So it was a huge learning curve for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm a dirt farmer's kid. We didn't really have animals to speak of on, on our farm when I was a kid. So, I come more from that side of of understanding the soils and things and I I love my dad uh has a pretty decent farm now. He started it also kind of nights and weekends when he had a full-time job and now he gets like trips because of how much chemical he buys and things like that. Probably the similar thing when you're in those it's so days. It's
2: interesting because it's such an economic model difference. So being raised in a world with animal husbandry, mm. you you are very uh, strapped, I think, mm-hmm. to the production aspect. So you have to buy your chickens, you have to buy the feed, and then you have to sell your chickens on the market. And you're at the vagaries of that and it's not much land it's intensive farming yeah. so you put yeah. uh you know for good and for evil we do intensive food production farming if you're a row crop farmer you have to have a lot of land
3: mm-hmm.
4: because
2: the equipment is so very expensive that if you can't spread it over a lot of acres the economics don't work so it was really an education in a model difference between intensive farming and and giant capital farming, yep. which really causes very different behaviors by the farmers, the amount of risk they take, how much debt they incur. Sure. And so that, in a way, was a living manifestation of my agriculture economics degree.
4: Yeah.
2: And one of the great things I got to do for Alenco was at the time President Reagan before had launched what they called National Agriculture Week as a way to recognize the importance of the family farm and farming In our country. And I was asked to produce the national television show that was called, uh, that was in honor of Ag Week. And it was called Who Will Farm the Land? And we really did an expose Mm. on the loss of family Mm. farms in this country. Well,
0: even their skills and things like that. Yeah.
2: Yes. Well, and the economic impossibility of being a family farm. Yeah. Because large scale farming is so different than what a small family can ever undertake. And, you know, for many debatable reasons, agriculture has moved to be a corporate enterprise in this country and not so much a family enterprise anymore. And that was made very real to me in my uh, years right out of college.
0: Well, I was reflecting on another difference in that husbandry versus land farming is that in in raising animals you're almost always just kind of working on a small margin you know prices go up and prices go down but there's just kind of a a value add thanks for creating more chickens fattening the cows whatever that question is whereas with dirt farming you might have you know a whatever two dollar and fifty cent wheat crop and only in our area 20 bushels to the acre would be fifty dollars an acre and you're losing money or you might have a seven dollar wheat crop and 100 bushels, and that would be $700 per acre,
4: mm-hmm. right?
0: And so just the difference, it the can variation. be windfalls mm-hmm. or losses. It's highly leveraged with all that capital. It comes is. a lot of leverage all to the model. All
2: those fixed costs are not altered. And this year makes me really think about those challenges. We have a small hay operation here mm-hmm. in Fort Collins. Yeah. And uh, Jack and I were talking about the cost of fertilizer is exactly two times what it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, The cost of diesel is almost three and a half times what it was. And so what does that mean about the cost of a bale of hay? It's got to go up because you can't manufacture that unit for the same price. When
0: you take that to a farther conclusion. So maybe you buy less fertilizer to compensate so you don't have to charge too much more. And maybe you're Europe and everybody buys less fertilizer because it's too damn expensive and then the food production goes way down and then guess what happens to the price of the rest there, of the yes. food
2: it is a it is a integrated cycle and our ability to think strategically and long term as a society maybe even as a world is not as uh, well honed as we, as we would is. all <laughs> like for it to be and i also think about the current times you know with ukraine and its very predominant place in Uh, wheat production and grain in the world and now you can see the wheat farmers the wheat is just beginning to come ripe and so wheat farmers this year will benefit from the constrained supply and people at the grocery store will pay more for bread and not like it and I think the reality of those economics don't get all the way to the American table and we should talk about it more
0: yeah I agree well, obviously, you've paid attention to in your agricultural economics classes better than I did.
2: <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so talk about
0: uh, kind of some of your career progression. And and if you think about um, things that were really meaningful to you that you learned along the way or that empowered kind of a next step of leadership, uh, feel free to draw extra light on those.
2: Well, there are so many people that have had a dramatic influence on my personal development my professional development I'll tell a story from that very first job I was the first woman they hired Mm. in that company for the south because it was new I am struck today thinking about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing uh, if it had not been for her and women like her by the time I graduated from college I would not have Likely gotten a job in the fields yeah. that I did because they had to hire women. And actually, they told me on my interviews mm. at college companies said, We have to hire diverse people. And so you're one mm. of our candidates. And, uh, you know, I always took that as an opportunity, not yeah. as a negative. Yeah, that's good. But it did open doors for me that five years earlier would not have been possible. So I came out of college. Went to work for Elanco, which was a wonderful company, but it was shocking for them. Uh, you know, I well, was a girl I in the I mean, it was south. shocking
0: for some of your clients. Uh, oh, very You, you come calling up on the farm, and you're this shocking, bright, red-haired gal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, there were many stories that, uh, you know, one could call developmental opportunities. <laughs> but I'll tell you one in particular, because it was such a lesson in leadership for me. So my biggest customer was a big co-op in uh, Middle of my territory in rural Arkansas, and he refused to talk to me. He did not want a woman calling on him, and he had some legitimate points. I was just out of college. I'd never worked row crops. I really did not know what I was doing, so I used the expression I was a green bean. I literally didn't know what I was doing. I was in training. I was working hard. I was studying. I was trying. I knew everyone in his business, the guy on the dock, the woman in the— Uh, reception area. I knew all of his farmer customers. I worked for months. Oh, so
0: you were there. I was trying hard, but he would
2: not speak with me. And he called my district manager, who was an incredibly talented district manager and had been in the business for three decades. Mm -hmm. And when he called Charles, he said, you know, I'm not going to buy any Treflan, which was the largest product we sold and the largest herbicide in the world at the time for soybean and cotton farmers. He said, I'm not going to buy any unless you give me my old sales rep back, who was a guy. And they had golfed together and been duck hunting together and were friends and who knew a lot more than me. And of course, you can imagine the district manager had pressure to hit his quota. Uh, There's definitely pressure from your customers to do what they want.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: so... Uh, that moment was critical because Charles could have said, oh, okay, well, Tom's in the same town still. I'll send him by. But instead, he said, gosh, Bob, that's a shame. Your farmers are going to miss Treflin if you change your mind called Ginger. <laughs> and that's…
0: I took a… A very
2: courageous moment. And it was a courageous moment. Well, he
0: had your back. That had to feel pretty special.
2: And you think about the time. You know, it was 1979. So we're talking about a long time ago before it was cool. (laughs) But he made that stand. And by making that stand, he gave me a chance to actually be successful on my own merits. I kept working. Eventually, Bob did see me, and when I got promoted, he took a lot of credit for how successful I had been, which I love. But it was a life-changing moment because it could have been, oh, well, you can't make quota, or everyone knows we shouldn't have hired a girl. It could have been yeah. all those stories, yeah. but it wasn't. And that was very important to me, and by that support, I did learn. I worked really hard. I got promoted and went to Indianapolis to the headquarters. Mm. And that's where I had the opportunity to learn marketing and advertising and promotion and the financials behind a business and all of the things that make a business run
3: Yeah, uh,
2: and realize how much I didn't know, which really opened the door to the next opportunity for me.
0: How was Indianapolis as a community uh, compared to what you had experienced before that? I've never been, but I'm...
2: Well, it's a wonderful place, but I have to tell you, back then, it was really different. Mm. Uh, We used to laugh and say they rolled up the sidewalks at 5 o'clock and put them indoors. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a town without um, activity. But Indianapolis, in an amazing few decades later, with a public-private partnership Mm. Leadership from the local business community, outstanding city leaders, the investment. It's now a vibrant, exciting community in sports, in symphony, in art, in music. Hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful town. And it's Midwesterners, you know, so they're the nicest people. For sure. So I, I really loved Indianapolis. I actually ended up living there four times in my career, in and out for various reasons. But it was a challenge. I was, I'd never been there Uh, you know, I drove my little used car north of the Mason-Dixon line by myself with some plants in my car and uh, rented a place and eventually found a little place to buy in Indianapolis and went to work for a headquarters, which i had never experienced. But I learned a ton and I got to travel and I got to learn a lot about the economics from a business perspective of agriculture. I ended up uh, being asked to run a program all over the U.S. for farmers to teach commodity trading because mm. it was a new idea mm. mm-hmm. at the time that farmers themselves could hedge their risk right. and try not to be exposed to the very things that you described, these wild swings up and down. Right. So we ended up going all over the U.S. and hosting tens of thousands of farmers and to teach them,
3: wow.
2: to encourage them to think about how to manage their risk going forward so they weren't exposed to wild swings in all the prices for the inputs or all the prices for their product
0: and this was really just a, a, a giving of knowledge for your organization yes and just to kind of brand building i guess in a way of hey yes, we got it your was, back and
2: yeah it was very much an investment by the company in agriculture as a community because at the time it's when commodity marketing was really growing dramatically. It's mm-hmm. when larger scale agriculture was happening.
3: Mm-hmm. A
2: lot of these, you know, farmers from all over the country were well, NAFTA was kind yes, of new back then. Amassing too. more acres. Uh, it was before the big embargo that Jimmy Carter put on Russia. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of debt being taken by farmers to expand because mm-hmm. there was so much market opportunity. And as with all economic swings I was in Elanco when when the embargo happened and commodity markets crashed in America. And unfortunately, that has a huge impact on rural America, not just a farmer. But if a farmer can't buy seeds, the seed company goes down. If a farmer doesn't buy fertilizer, the fertilizer company. And then the bank who loaned all those businesses their money. And pretty soon, rural America lost its economic stability. And this happened
4: in the early
2: 80s. exactly. And so I... My first memories
0: of Willie Nelson.
2: Yes, exactly. Trying to help farm families. And it's when a lot of family farms went bankrupt. And they went... Uh, families were thrown off their farms because that's not just their business, it's their home. And it was a huge lesson in the global politics and how it affects local farm families.
0: And so if you were sitting on the shoulder of the deciders at that time, were there mistakes and errors that really contributed to the crisis?
2: Oh, Kurt, books have been written. (laughs) Books and books have been written. Uh, There's no doubt that our interface with Russia... Over my entire life,
4: yeah,
2: has caused it continues today. Yes, has caused dislocation and disruption, mm-hmm. and I think it it doesn't come home on a daily basis, except every now and then. And it certainly came home when I was a young marketing associate, and all of our customers were losing their homes and their farms, yeah, yeah. and their children were facing the reality that they would never be farmers. Uh, it's come home to us again today when we're looking now we can see it on tv and social media in a way that is almost overwhelming to watch yeah. and it's hitting our economic fortunes and supply chain issues in general our lifestyle and i think hopefully it sobers us and remember it helps us remember we're part of a global community and we also need a strong america where we can feed ourselves and take care of ourselves, and we won't lose sight of yeah. agriculture as part of that.
0: That's a fair statement. I've been, uh, and we sh- shouldn't get too many squirrels chased, but I've been thinking lately, and, and even writing in my blogs, that energy is almost more like money than money is these days.
2: It's amazing how commodities actually are the value, whether it's
0: right, whether it's gold, rare metals, or oil, or, or
2: oil, or wheat, grain. Uh, we must not forget that all of the superfluous benefits yeah. of today's age can't make up for survival.
0: I might feel like I could die if I don't have an iPhone, but I won't actually. <laughs> you probably won't.
2: <laughs>
0: so, did you get tossed out of the industry then? With oh, it's such of a great insight
2: of it was. It was worse than being tossed out. I was not. I had no outlet to contribute. You know, so I was a very junior member of the staff. Uh the company downsized by half. Hmm. All of our customers were upended. The world was in chaos. Interest rates spiked. You may remember twenty one percent interest rates. I was
0: five, but
2: Yes, you don't remember. Not very good. It was a very tumultuous time. But my dad
0: lost his first farm at yes. that time as well. So he you bought can, a farm on a contract a, and, and mm-hmm, had to give it back.
2: A personal memory about that. And so it was a time where as a young person in a business, they had much bigger fish to fry than me. So I was looking for opportunities. I was not able to really uh, contribute in a big way. And so I went to they had a company shrink and i had him do a whole battery of tests about my aptitudes and abilities and yeah. interests thinking maybe what should that i would, be when i grow up yes maybe that a, will help me i can't
0: watch these people suffering <laughs> longer.
2: but he had some great advice he said you know you love business uh you have an aptitude for business but you don't have the skills you you hmm. don't have the training he said you should go to business school oh and I had never had an accounting course or a finance course or a marketing course. I was an ag kid. I took <laughs> science and math. So I decided to go to the library, such an antique idea, and read about business schools. And I did, and I found a brochure about Harvard Business School, oh. which really intrigued me because of the Socratic method for teaching. Oh. And That's I what was, we use at Local Think Tank is basically it? the Socratic mm-hmm. method
0: for pulling problems apart and challenges.
2: Mm-hmm. It. I was enamored with the concept that people from all over the globe would get together and debate and discuss and bring perspectives. And you would solve problems based on that collection of insight and passion, as opposed to a more narrow decision process or being lectured to and told right. what the answer would be. <sighs> so in my naivety, I didn't I didn't know where Harvard was. I didn't know anybody who had <laughs> ever been. Uh, I had a brochure in a library. I applied. And uh, the miracle was I got in. So I literally sold everything I owned, including my car and my furniture and my place. And I packed up in an old car that my brother gave me that, in a true metaphor in life, was on cinder blocks in Arkansas. <laughs> and, but do uh, you think
0: we can, we can make it to Connecticut?
2: <laughs> yes, well, we, is I. Is that where Harvard I, is? It's in Boston. Boston, yeah. Mass, so I went to high school with a guy who owned a mechanic shop, and he offered to try to make the car run for me. So we put new tires on it, and he made it run. Dennis fixed it up, and my mom got in the car with me, and I drove to Boston.
0: And you're, like, maybe 27 or something? Like yes, 26,
2: I think, at the okay. time. And um, so intimidating.
0: And, yeah, well, what about so, your folks? How did your folks feel? Well, just, your mom went with yes. you at least to get she drive out. She drove
2: with me, yes, because it's a very long drive from right. rural Arkansas to Boston. I think they were worried and afraid. I had a great job, a great paying job. I had a company car, an expense account. I had traveled the U.S. <laughs> I had been promoted. She's on top of the world. What exactly, is she doing? And I ended up, you know, Selling everything, quitting everything, moving to a place they'd never been. And it was, it's very sweet still as a memory for me because I remember when they talked to someone who knew what Harvard was. Mm. And that person <laughs> changed, you know, their fears, I right. think, because when that person explained to them what it meant for me to get into Harvard Business School. Mm then i think their anxieties dropped yeah about was i making a huge mistake in life but it was very challenging i couldn't afford harvard for one thing and i was very blessed to get a scholarship that paid my second year of tuition wow. because i don't know how i would have done it i came out with a huge <clears> throat> amount throat> of debt anyway but you know my friends from indianapolis sent me jars of peanut butter and <laughs> it was one of those things that the opportunity was life-altering.
0: So when I got to college, I had come from this kind of very rural background. I graduated with a class of five, and uh, I was sure that I was going to be kind of quote-unquote dumber than these city kids and stuff that were going to be at North Dakota State University, and honestly, I I acted in such a way that I kind of tried to prove it for a couple years before (laughs) I realized that I was just as smart as them. I can imagine maybe being intimidated when you're going to Harvard Business School, even though you'd been to college and been a high performer there, Was that scary in that fashion? It was
2: completely intimidating and overwhelming. Just pulling into the parking lot. So I had this 1972, (laughs) 98 Oldsmobile that was rusted around the wheel covers. And I pull into the parking lot with Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Mercedes. And so I knew day one I was in a place that I'd never experienced and maybe didn't fit. And they do something at Harvard or they did back then that also was very intimidating. They publish a resume book. So Mm. your first class at Harvard, you're put in a chair with 90 people. You stay in that room for a whole year. So you and 89 other people sit in the same seat in the same room and your faculty comes to you. So you debate every topic, every class, every case study with that same 89 people. So you really in depth experience their experiences in their lives. And that one seat in that room with that resume book completely blew my mind. I knew I didn't belong. There was no way I was gonna make it. I was scared to death. I would stay up all night long studying. I was so worried that I was gonna fail at Harvard Business School. And all of the things about you know quitting your job and taking a risk and all that would have been wrong. And the good news is, at the midterms, I made it. I I got good grades on my (laughs) midterms. Did you
0: ease up a little bit on yourself then? Well,
2: I don't think I ever cared less. But I began to learn over time that I could compete. Yeah. And have the confidence to speak and compete. Because at Harvard, half of your grade is your verbal participation. Hmm. So you must speak.
0: Interesting. So
2: your confidence in speaking, your ability to clearly state your thoughts, to argue your viewpoints, to present your ideas is critical to your grade at Harvard.
0: So how was your acceptance by the other bluebloods that were part of those classes and that 89 other people? Did they welcome you as quickly as you welcomed yourself?
2: Well there's no doubt that there was awkwardness for me. Uh, Who knows what they thought at the time. I was a little bit older most classmates. I had worked for five years before I applied to business school. I definitely was different than everyone else there. And I did meet for the first time what I call other women like me. So two of my best friends to this day are women that were in that classroom with me because I began to see that other women Mm. had big interest in business and also spoke out and had a lot of you know, engagement, Suburb. yes, about uh, ideas and about competing. And that was a great confidence builder. But it was an amazing education because I did get to be with people from every country in the world, every walk of life, every yeah, experience, what a multilingual, incredible families, you know, people that are not like me. And I learned to appreciate and sometimes appreciate less certain viewpoints and certain lifestyles. And it also taught me that I had to engage with every one of them. It didn't matter what I thought about Mm. their life or what they thought about mine. I still had to engage to be successful and to get my thoughts across. And I think that was an important lesson in its own right.
0: Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, I lost my passing thought. It was going to be about, I better just move on. Um, so, talk to me about like the the environment there. Like, are the connections that you made at Harvard were those some of the things that that just propelled you from there? Was that like part of the rest of the journey, or did it was it more the education?
2: Well, there's no doubt there was a lot of education, but it's very experiential in the classroom. So, first is you get exposed to things that. You know, we're never in my twilight zone uh, up to that point. So every major company CEO in the world comes to the classroom. You're exposed constantly to full case studies, maybe forty or fifty pages of detail about a business problem. Oh, interesting. You you consume enormous amounts of information. And these are just like fake case studies. No, these, these are, are, like are real, real hard problems faced by these CEOs. And I believe so many things came from Harvard, but maybe not as predictable as one would imagine. To me, I learned the importance of the debate and Mm. the diversity of everyone in the room to come to better solutions. Uh, I learned Mm. so much about how mistakes happen all the time, bad decisions, people come at it wrong, wrong reasons. The world goes on.
4: Yeah,
2: Uh, Life doesn't end when you make a really bad decision and a bad mistake. You may have to pay for it for a long time, (laughs) but you can keep going. I learned that my ability to consume enormous amounts of information and then figure out what matters Mm. was good and it got better over two years. That is a skill you build at Harvard because of the required reading and work there. Uh, And the self-confidence, realizing that you can compete with. Yeah. You know, in my class, 900 people from around the world at Harvard Business School, that is a big vote of confidence. So it, it definitely opens doors. Putting Harvard Business School on your resume either makes people like you more or like you less. I'll tell you a quick story. <laughs> sure, I ended up going to work for Elizabeth Arden mm. after business school, and they were having a lot of issues. And one of the tasks was I was involved with the strategic planning to figure out how to fix elizabeth arden it was was,
0: uh, is this like a brand like a fashion yes it's a cosmetics company Cosmetics, okay mrs
2: arden was a very if you think about uh charles of the ritz or elizabeth arden or l'oreal or uh, there were many famous brands in the 60s and 70s and elizabeth arden was in trouble and so one of the first things i have Mm -hmm. always done and still do to this day is i go to the front line so ride with the sales rep Mm -hmm. in that business stood at a cosmetics counter in new york city with a very senior sales rep. And it's very funny because I spent time with him and he took me back to the airport after I'd been there for a few days. And one of the things he said to me is, thank goodness they didn't send some Harvard MBA to try to tell me how to do my job. And I went back home, but I had to call him back and say, I just have to let you know, I actually am a Harvard MBA, (laughs) but it's this, image that people have of that degree that you're arrogant or that you think you're better than everybody yeah. else. So, of course, it can get in the way, but that's superficial because it does help you get someone to pay attention yeah, to you. Yeah. Well, and I think my whole career i benefited from having succeeded at Harvard Business School. Well,
0: this is really our like third limited interaction, you know, uh, aside from asking if you would want to be on the podcast a few weeks ago. But you've you're a humility first. You you kind of wear it as part of your person. And I think that's probably that Socratic method in action, like seeing that my one perspective that I have is not the full picture. And the more we can mix all of us together and understand each other, the, the more robust our solutions are going to be.
2: Well, it's it's so big that uh, we we are human. We like people like us. It's comfortable. Mm. But having the chance to have... Travelled the world and worked now in i don 't know nine or ten different industries and working working always with people who were not like me because I was always the youngest, the only girl, yeah. the first time ever, never done it before, and that has been a gift yeah, I believe sure. to me in my life
0: I remember the question I wanted to ask um, my, my neighbor previously was from Arkansas, a little farther south but She had a very strong accent. Did you have an accent at this time? And you worked it off during college or after that or at Harvard?
2: Yes. Remember I mentioned I was on the radio for a little while. Learned to talk like the
0: woman on the 6 o'clock news. I
2: listened to myself and I did not like it. I thought it didn't sound professional. Hmm. So I worked on my accent, but you can ask anyone who knows me if I'm tired, it's all out there. Or Or if I called home or been back to visit, I used to work for a guy who was from the upper Midwest, a brilliant economist and highly published in competitive strategy. Hmm. And he would not talk to me after I'd been home for the holidays. He would just put his hand up and stop. And he'd say, don't talk to me. I can't understand a thing you're saying. (laughs) It was just our joke that I, I redeveloped my accent when I would go home
0: <laughs> does it nibble at you if you have a always. couple glasses of wine always or anything? always
2: <laughs> it's always lurking so
0: so you fixed up Elizabeth Arden well we uh, ended up started... selling Arden okay. uh,
2: Fabergé acquired it it was a very heady time on Wall Street it's when Michael Milken and junk oh, bonds were yeah. huge the market crashed the in the of middle of Wall Street yes. and all that kind of stuff. It, the market crashed in the middle of the deal. We lost it. We had to refinance it. It was really an incredible learning experience because I worked you know, for a little over a year and a half pulling a company apart around the globe, trying to fashion it, put it up for auction, find the right bidder, go through the legal process, survive the Black Tuesday market crash. Wow. It was a life experience. And were
0: you like leading this charge in a sort? Or were I you was the project
2: kind of... team manager. Okay. So I wasn't an expert in anything. It was my job just to keep it all going and bring all the experts in. And I was way over my head, way, way, <laughs> way over my head. But it was another one of those great opportunities that, you know, you can't make up. I got to learn so much at the feet of experts.
0: Well, when you get stretched, uh, you, you're kind of bigger after that. Right. Indeed. And it doesn't pull you apart too often.
2: Yes, well that that old saying that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh I love doing something I've never done before because I learn. Yeah. And I'm I think I'm a better person when I'm learning than when I'm executing what I already know how yeah. to do. Because then the the energy, the enthusiasm, the zest for learning is yeah. is a contributor. It's a positive aspect.
0: Yeah. Once I've already figured out how to do it, then it starts to get a little bit less exciting. That's one of the beautiful things about having a community space like you have uh, built. And we'll come back to Ginger and Baker, but like there's new experiences every day uh, and and new people coming through the door and things. So I wanna kind of move relatively quickly through the the early career and to your first kind of senior leadership kinds of roles. And um, feel free to to grab some notable moments along the way but kind of take me through your career a little bit and then to the i think it was a device manufacturing
1: this episode is sponsored by loco think tank loco think tank provides peer collaboration for business owners we build smart safe places to help business leaders navigate every stage of the business journey and we love what we do and who we do it with Our model features gift-back-minded business veterans in the role of LOCO facilitators, and we're always looking for abundance-minded individuals to add to our membership, facilitator team, local community, or to feature on this podcast. Listeners of this podcast who go on to become members of LOCO Think Tank get their sixth month of membership for free. Just mention the LOCO Experience podcast on your application. To learn more, visit our website at locothinktank.com. That's L-O-C-O thinktank.com.
2: Yes. Well, after uh, Elizabeth Arden, I went to the pharmaceutical division of Eli Lilly and Company, okay. and they had uh, what they called economic studies, which is market research, and that was a great way to learn the business mm. because it's all the data around what mm-hmm. the market is, what it wants to be, what isn't happening, what's changed. Yeah. So I was what are able the unmet to re- needs out there. Yes, I was really able to learn the pharmaceutical industry, and I worked for a company whose President of the pharmaceutical company also was president of the trade association. Mm. So I had the great opportunity to study at his feet and also write all of his speeches for the trade <laughs> association and really learned the global pharmaceutical business as a student while I was working, just uh, from people who really were making the global pharmaceutical work. So that was a great experience. They asked me to be a director of sales. They had never had Hmm. a female director of sales. So that was a good experience. I learned a ton traveling with sales reps when it comes to helping physicians' offices, and dealing with the difficulties of primary care in the US. And then from there went to uh, run a medical device company. So Lilly happened to own the largest angioplasty company in the world. Mm. And they sent me out as CEO of that angioplasty company. Wow. So the next 10 years. I want to
0: think about this. Uh, I just heard you say uh, did more writing. And so you've got that kind of particular knack. And I like to say writing is thinking. You're clearly a numbers girl and understand economics and finance, and then sales. Like you, were you intentionally trying to get kind of multidisciplined and broad scoped, or is that your nature? Because th- that's kind of what a CEO has to be: is a little bit fingers in a lot of things and understanding, but not too deep anywhere.
2: I don't know that I was conscious as a young professional that. I, ne- well, I never had the aspiration to be a CEO. So I wasn't gathering- it wasn't intentional. No, I wasn't gathering a skill set so I could be a CEO. I love business. I'm fascinated by what it takes to make it work. And it doesn't matter if it's agriculture or cosmetics or pharmaceuticals or medical devices or hospitality, the value chain, the need for people, the human interaction, the creativity, mm. the discipline of execution, every one of those industries something is more important than others and it might be different among all of those industries but it's a business and it takes people to make it work so i love business i love the complexity and the chaos and the creativity of business and i think in that sense i had a quest to learn more and more and more and more about businesses and every job i had I purposefully would meet everyone in that company at my level. I would try to buy them a coffee or take them to lunch and say, how did you get here? And what do you do? And how does my job affect your job? And is there something my group could do better that would help you be more successful? Because to me, it was learning how a business worked. And that excitement for me, I think, drew attention for my career and then It both helped me say yes to taking jobs I didn't know how to do, but also I think showed to the corporate executives that I would and could take risk and could generally be successful taking that risk. And that's a partnership. And having worked for great companies was my good fortune.
0: Yeah. Well, and they had seen you be either a a sponge or maybe even a vacuum cleaner of (laughs) curious topics and learning and growing skills and training. You you said just a moment ago that you were sent to be CEO. Yes, uh, tell me yes. about that. Was well, that like you didn't apply for the job? <laughs> they were just like, "Hey, Ginger, not. strap your boots on. You're headed to
4: Cincinnati." Yes.
2: I did not apply for the job. No one was more surprised than me to get that job offer, and it actually came at a payphone in the Dallas Fort Worth
1: airport. <laughs> okay,
2: so I was director of sales and had the whole middle of the U.S. and all these district managers, and I was supposed to call in. To the corporate headquarters and they offered me the job they owned 10 medical device and diagnostics companies okay so would, they were wholly owned Private companies into this big public company, and the executives of Lilly decided that they wanted me to go have the experience to run my whole company. And
0: there wasn't a CEO there, there before. There was,
2: kinda... you know, there was a CEO, but they were pulling him back into the corporate headquarters, ah. and so they were using. Yeah. Let's the... see what Ginger can do. Exactly. You got this little, got this
0: little ten <laughs> billion dollar training ground, or whatever these companies were. It,
2: it's really remarkable. I today, I still am amazed that they did that. That they Put me in that job yeah. i clearly was not prepared fully for that job but it was a life-altering wonderful experience i
0: suspect it wasn't filling quotas anymore either.
2: no it was not but clearly uh cardiologists were not expecting a woman ceo <laughs> right uh, in fact and plus
0: you're not even 40 by this time. no
2: i'm not and the guy who was the ceo set me up before i got there he told the executive team that a new CEO is coming in and it's a former bull rider and a Harvard MBA. And both of those are true.
4: <laughs>
2: but of course they weren't expecting me when right. I got there. So there was not necessarily an enthusiastic reception. And I didn't know anything about angioplasty. I didn't even know how to spell it. I'd never seen one. So again, it was this great fortune to have yeah. people believe in me and put me in roles where I could demonstrate that i could do it over time well
0: and that fresh eyes coming from outside of that sphere i bet even though there was things that would have been valuable about having experience with angioplasty some of the questions that you could ask that they couldn't see would really help to to make that come together
2: it is important i think to be able to to learn again to ask all the questions again and everyone who reported to me had enormous experience in the field Mm -hmm. so there was great leadership, technical capability, uh, business abilities in the organization, huge talent. It had been the number one company in the world. So there was resident expertise. It was in trouble when I went, a mass exodus of R&D, declining Mm. sales, product recalls. So there were lots of issues when I was sent out there. (laughs) So not
0: just a CEO role, but a turnaround CEO And
2: you know, in the end, so for me, I've told people many times, I think one of the great gifts I got is I was sent many times into troubled situations. Mm. And you can look better uh, when you fix a problem. You know, <laughs> you you do have the benefit, if you can turn things around, of getting credit for something that, in fact, it took the whole organization to do. Of
0: course, yeah. Were, were any of those failures, too?
2: Oh, we made tons of mistakes, for sure. Uh, I I don't, you know, how do you say that? I don't mark anything to to a failure. I learned. I (laughs) I, I made huge mistakes. I made a $50 million mistake once. Thankfully, we recovered from that. But I I don't feel like they were failures because they were true uh, efforts at trying to do the right thing and working hard to be up to the task but i've made plenty of mistakes
0: fair enough now were you married to your work this whole time or did you fall in love or have children or (laughs) any of this stuff along the way we've been really business focused yeah
2: yes well i was uh in love with my work for a very long time i did meet jack When I was running the angioplasty company. Okay. So he and I have been together 25 years now. Oh, congratulations. And we've moved and relocated and both run companies at the same time and both traveled the globe and seen each other in various airports in Paris or Dallas or name a place. So we both are very motivated to contribute and make a difference and build things. And we enjoy that about each other. And
0: what was he doing uh, when you guys first met
2: Well, Jack was one of the premier uh, reinsurance intermediaries in the world when I met him. So he took risk, like earthquake and hurricane risk, and he laid it off into other markets so that if the big earthquake happens in California and... All these houses are lost. It doesn't collapse. Bankrupt the California exactly. insurance Exactly The whole insurance yeah, world Yeah, Warren goes Buffett down. did a lot of that kind of stuff, yes, too. Yes, and he yeah. worked with Ward and Ajit Jain a lot. Okay. And so he was a financier, basically, for the world's biggest disasters. Interesting. Had done that in his whole career. And then he started his own company and had a Lloyd's of London syndicate, the first one that they ever allowed in the U.S. And he had a Bermuda reinsurance company, uh, and he built in boulder a claims business and a managing general agency so he had a very large um, portfolio of insurance-based products interesting and he traveled the globe raising money from singapore and china re and berlin and paris and all the places to finance big disasters
0: wow well, I'll have to have him on to tell this journey as yeah, well. Yeah, his
2: stories are amazing. He's <laughs> done things that no one else has ever done.
0: So talk to me. So not only did you turn this angioplasty firm around, what's it, was it a separate name division? Yes, it was, was called
2: Advanced Cardiovascular Systems. Okay. And uh, Lily then put us up for sale with the other medical device and diagnostics companies, and a group of us decided to take it public. So we <clears throat> went public as Guidant Corporation. Oh, okay. And we had was a learning experience, probably, too. Yes, an incredible ride. Taking a company public is its own adventure. Yeah. You uh, do the same presentation a 100 times all over the globe trying to get people to invest in your business. And we really ended up with the number one selling stint in the world, the largest defibrillator market participant in the world, a very significant pacemaking business. A lot of other cardiac surgery tools interesting uh it was I, a business that i'm very proud of i know we can claim literally that we saved millions of lives wow. and it was uh, an amazing group of people to work with well
0: the tech has probably changed but actually my staffer is getting a stent oh is that right <laughs> well actually yeah.
2: the stent technology is the same, stint same technology that we launched in 1998.
0: interesting and that was were, was there competing technologies yes. in that marketplace?
2: Yes, we were the fourth to market. Oh, wow. So uh, the company that I took over, ACS, had not invested in new technology. Hmm. So we brought in. their R&D in, was kind of yes.
0: floundering. And- so
2: we brought in a program. I named it a woman who is amazing um, as a leader. And we, a few years later, launched the Multilink Stent, which has been was nine straight years the world's leading stent wow. in the wor- uh, market and it it really changed interventional cardiology so that you could get a stent in more remote places they could go in more easily they were more reliable and that is what life-saving mm. technology does is yeah. It it changes the procedure so that You're in and out of the hospital in a flash.
0: And how do you market that? Is there like a a few big hospital supply companies, and you just got to say, "Hey, I got these stints; they work really good." Or you have to obviously like educate doctors and stuff like that too to understand. You do
2: devices are different (coughs) in that it. I describe it uh, like playing golf. If you're a golfer, you have your own inherent physical attributes and skills and capabilities
0: mostly limitations yeah
2: (laughs) for most of us not good skills but we have a few and then you have a golf course which might be long and cold or windy or pouring rain or you know really rough a lot of tall grass and then you have your equipment you have your golf balls and your golf clubs and it's that combination of your skill the terrain and the equipment that Mm. sets up a procedure. So in interventional cardiology, you have your heart, your anatomy, your vessel size, your particular genetics. You might use my equipment or one of my competitor's equipment. And you have a doctor who has done 10,000 or 10, who has skills or not so much. And it's that combination. And the industry is responsible for making the technology as easy to use as possible and as safe as possible but we don't train doctors we train them about our equipment but we're not allowed to train them we're not allowed to interface with the patient we're not allowed to tell the doctor what to do so the Mm -hmm. doctor makes all those choices and it's really hopefully over time you know a responsible relationship that industry provides better and better tools Mm -hmm. and doctors learn more and more about the tools at their disposal and which ones are best for which patient
0: yeah what an interesting Model, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, America is one of the few places that pharmaceutical companies can advertise on the telly still. And uh, I don't know if you watch any broadcast television, but it's like almost a third or half anymore, you know, until political season comes. The,
2: is that right? That's all that's yeah. really
0: on there is like different. Yes.
2: Well, I was actually managing a pharmaceutical company after the device company, a biotech company that's in diabetes and was mm. on the board for the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Trade Association when all of those debates were happening about should we talk directly to the public yeah, and so it's a it's a very interesting philosophical debate. There clearly are egregious examples on both ends of good and bad, but if you think about it, how does one educate the American public on symptoms or conditions they might be having, yeah. and what options are available yeah. to them and yeah. so we you know we all believe as Americans, we have a right to know, we have a right to investigate our own health to pursue our well-being and at the same time uh physicians are inundated with i think now it's eight hundred and seventy-five thousand scientific publications a year <laughs> right an unlimited number of products and technologies it's like worse than the tax code how could they possibly uh, be the most knowledgeable person on every aspect yeah. so we see specialization happen mm. and that's really what the device industry hmm. deals with, is we dealt with specialists. Mm-hmm. So an electrophysiologist, an interventional cardiologist, and those people spend their whole careers learning these procedures and this technology. And you don't see that advertised really on right, TV because right. it's very specialist. Well, because they're seeing
0: most of the heart patients anyway.
2: Yes, but isn't it conceptually a good idea that everyone with diabetes learns through advertising what the symptoms are, that they should be doing something, that there are different kinds of solutions, and maybe something could help them. Yeah. So at the highest level, I think it's a very appropriate. The question is, do we execute well and do we hold ourselves accountable yeah. to fair disclosure and appropriate communications? And that's always the challenge. I
0: just know that my life will be perfect if I take... Uh, most of these uh, One happy of these pills, pills. <laughs> yeah. so um what was the exit from this once you went public? did you Oh
2: no, I was there for another uh eight and a half, almost nine years. okay, so we built the business uh, had and an how incredible much did you scale? Experience. it was
0: like talk to me about like oh, people yeah. and revenues mm-hmm. and
2: well when I started with ACS, we had. I think 1,900 employees. And when I left Guidant, it was almost 14,000. Wow. So it was, you know, quite a growth over time in technology and employment base. We put factories all over the world. Wow. Uh, We expanded access dramatically to these technology procedures.
0: How do you decide where to put a art stent factory or whatever
2: you know it's such a great question it's very complicated it has to do a lot with talent and uh trade laws can you get product in and Mm -hmm. out are you close to a market you can imagine that shipping everything we had a factory in Temecula California so shipping everything from Temecula to the world isn't as smart as Temecula
0: like way north or something it's south
2: it's down by San Diego okay but you know it's a great place to have a facility but it's not efficient to right. ship every stent for the planet out of a factory where the earthquakes live in Temecula, <laughs> right. California. So we ended up having a European factory and then eventually in other parts of the world. And it has a lot to do with access to markets, regulation, tax code, uh, protection for intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So we never put a factory in some parts of Asia because the risk for intellectual property was too high.
0: Right. Fair enough. Um, and what was that transition out of uh, guidance?
2: Well, I had been there 10 years, and I really felt like there mm. were we had been building young talent to succeed us. The three yeah. of us at the top had planned from day one about how we would sustain the business and mm. the talent that would be below us and how we would prepare them to run the company. And I thought it was time for that succession for me, and I had... Other interest and yeah. uh, so I ended up then at a biotech company in San been, Diego yeah
0: okay <laughs> I talked to me about not uh, as not necessarily my business but were you able to participate in the growth of that aside from your CEO salary did you guys get to have a stake in oh, that yes, early when we stage went, yes, and things when like that yes when we
2: went public as employees, we could buy stock at the what they call the IPO, the initial public offering. So I bought some stock at the IPO and held it for 10 years yeah. all the way to the end. And then most public companies grant some form of equity, a stock option. Today, sometimes it's not options, it's actual shares or restricted shares. But back then it was all on the risk of the company as an option of whether we would grow in value or not. Yeah. And so I was granted stock options over my time as an executive there. Yeah. And you know all of that at the end, you're forced really to, liquidate some of your positions when you leave publicly traded companies. Sure. So I held some and had to get rid of some. But, yes, it was obviously yeah, very, very rewarding for me personally, professionally, intrinsically in so many ways.
0: Well, and rewarding for every other shareholder as well, right? Like, you know, Lily had this kind of broken toy that, that you fixed right up for him and turned it into something that probably made them a huge uh, – Chunk or not them, I guess. Yes, well no, it was actually
2: financially very attractive for Lily. The shareholders of Guidance did very well over a decade. I believe the employees were rewarded handsomely. We also gave equity to every single employee in oh, Guidant. Cool. So we engaged them as owners of the business and reported to them every quarter, just like the rest of our shareholders. That's great. So we tried to build a team there that really all of us were focused on the same thing, which was having a huge impact on human health.
0: Well, and that was leading edge kind of thinking at yes, that time. Yes, it was very well. novel at yeah, the time. T- tell me about yeah. that before I move along because. That seems like, like, was that your idea or like how, how oh, did I you introduce that to the board and stuff? I don't anything
2: in particular, but uh, <laughs> right. all of us at the Leadership Team of Guidance, we worked for a guy named Ron Dollins, who was CEO. And Ron, I do believe, was one of the most progressive thinkers in business. Hmm. He he had diversity as a pure foundational concept. We had essentially all the women and all the people of color and all the international people who worked in cardiology at the time worked for guidance because Ron's whole view was you can be green and two feet tall, but if you help make a difference, you're in. (laughs) And that was not the culture of the device industry at the time. So it was a very diverse, very young, very bold plan it also was the strictest compliance standards. We did a lot of things that other device companies didn't do. We wouldn't let uh, our products be named after physicians. We wouldn't let inventors be primary investigators, mm. which are kind of technical issues in the yeah, industry. Yeah. But it meant that we had a separation. You can't grade between... your own work, it sounds exactly. like to me. <laughs> We wanted that objective third-party scientific review we did the first randomized trials in the medical device industry we did the first nih partnership trials uh, as a company in the industry so we tried to raise the standard dramatically we were very diverse and inclusive we had the first affinity groups Mm. Uh, we had something called grow guidance reaches out to women we had other affinity groups the first in the industry it was um A very bold and future-based business that was built on the idea that if you know everything that I know and you and I both have the same goals, that we will do things that no one else can do because we are committed to the same cause. And I still believe that as an operating principle to this day.
0: I think that's lovely. So you started uh, moving us to San Diego in a biotech firm after that guidance experience. Uh, Talk to me about that.
2: Well, Amelin was the name of the company, and it was a very passion-driven company. Amelin was founded by a group of people who were primarily either experiencing type 1 diabetes themselves or Mm. had family members who did. Mm. And the original inventions and ideas uh, were a brilliant guy in the biotech industry who, at that time, had started maybe 15 or 18 different biotech companies. Today, I have no idea what the number is. Ted is a remarkable individual. But it was based on the idea that uh, people with type 1 diabetes have very specific physiological issues that have to be dealt with in a way that no one else ever experiences. Hmm. And so they were working on a synthetic replication of a human hormone called amylin. Hmm. If you don't have insulin, it means your pancreas quit producing something that's critical for your life.
3: Mm-hmm. If
2: you don't have Insulin, you probably also don't have amylin, Hmm. and they're partner hormones. They work together. So when you eat, all the sugar doesn't dump into your bloodstream all at once. It slows down how your nutrition and calories it in slow release exactly. And so when you eat, if you're a diabetic Mm. that's insulin dependent, you have to have an insulin shot. Right. But if you also take amylin as a hormone then you don't need as much insulin because it slows out the release of those calories. And so we were trying to get approval for a drug called uh, Simlin, which was a synthetic version of amylin. And unfortunately, because the FDA had never evaluated a drug for type 1 diabetes, if you think about it, insulin was before the FDA. So there wasn't a drug for just people with type 1 diabetes it was a very difficult process it took over 16 years Ugh. for amlin to get approval for that drug but they believed they were going to get approval and they asked me to come to help commercialize the business uh. so to build sales and marketing and customer and service you started doing and, that and they were like
0: uh, we're still kind of stuck in this compliance
2: yes, yes. Uh. and we were stuck for quite a while uh it took how long did it take it took um another two and a half years to get the drug approved, we thought I was coming in in time to get the drug approved and launch it, but it took another two and a half years. But it was a a wonderful experience to work with people so passionate about helping people with diabetes. We ended up launching two first-in-class medicines for people with diabetes, one with type 1 and one with type 2.
3: Uh,
2: We partnered with a big pharmaceutical company because we were a little biotech to make sure that it was available around the world. contract
0: manufacturing basically.
2: Yes, and also sales. We had to have more help to educate primary physicians because if you think about it, when you went to med school, you never heard of GLP-1 or you never heard of amylin. You don't know they exist. And so someone has to help you understand that we now in science have learned that there are new hormones that uh, we didn't understand before. And there's a reason that you should think about giving these hormones to people with diabetes because it will help them get back to almost a physiologic state Hmm. instead of a deprived physiologic state.
4: And it made a big
2: difference. And that was an exciting and, you know, very, and in many ways, um, emotional kind of job because young women who have type 1 diabetes... Uh, society has put a lot of pressure on them to not have children oh. because of the risk oh. uh, of their own health and the ability to take care of their child if they have trouble with their health. Right. So we worked with a group of young women across the country that were mothers with type 1 diabetes oh, wow. and you know, help them learn how to Reopen
0: be that door. more
2: in control of their diabetes. There were just many wonderful things about that job. And it was uh, an exciting time to be in biotech.
0: What a cool thing. Um, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and head towards the Ginger and Baker story. Okay. Time in Fort Collins. things I'm hearing a lot is your why is so important to you, and it's been super important for the, I guess, performance and alignment, the clarity of these teams. Can you talk to me about just a minute of that or two? It seems like the the why of this diabetes company, the why of the – And and if the purpose is strong, you're willing to really give it a go.
2: Yes, it's true. I'm very drawn to things that have meaning, that matter. And and especially if no one's ever done them or most people think (laughs) they can't be done. (laughs) I'm even more drawn, which maybe says something really sick about my personality. But the idea that uh, everything's possible, (laughs) everything is possible, it has cost. Yeah. You know, whether it's a 100-hour work week or travel 260 days a year or, uh, you know, ridicule of others or naysayers or risk, there's a cost to doing things that really are hard. hard. Yeah,
3: for
4: sure.
2: And I'm drawn to those if they have meaning, not yeah. difficulty for difficulty's sake. <laughs> right, exercise
0: but for exercise. But if day. you
2: can change the entire practice of medicine for the better, yeah. if you can give people – more control over their own health if you can build something that allows people to have experiences that you know impact them their whole lives what a great thing why don't we do that
0: yeah i love it i love it i I saw a meme the other day that you might resonate with uh it's a uh, uh, go ahead and underestimate me. This is uh. going to be fun.
2: <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of my girlfriends who have that t-shirt, uh, you know, almost as a gender bias kind of statement like underestimate me, that will be fun. But I think it's a great idea for self-worth mm-hmm. and, you know, let's let's employ that idea with our children, with the young people, with our yeah. college students is be what you know you can be. Yeah. And if you're underestimated, find satisfaction in helping people think bigger, not well, punish them because they underestimated Well, you. and to be-
0: believe bigger about themselves. Mm-hmm. I think there's too many people that really hide their specialness and their unique talents under a basket, kind of. And, and it takes somebody special sometimes to... To help them pull the basket off or recognize that they're doing that.
2: Amen. And, you know, how many times in my career someone saw in me more than I knew about myself. For sure. Thank goodness for them. I'm so appreciative of the people who could look at me and say, you are more than you know you are yet. Yes. And I believe in you, so go for it. I love it. I've been blessed by those.
0: Talk to me about uh, when that old feed store became an apple of your eye. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that old feed store. It's it's really an accident in a way. Uh, Jack was here at CSU, says it's the best job he's ever had. He loved the student athletes. He loved working with them, building something that could be amazing. You know, CSU ended up number one in the country in the four major sports in wins his last year there. Uh, every single student athlete was academically eligible while well, he was there. The first time in CSU's oh, history, cool. so you know Jack was vested in. And what
0: was his run? Uh,
2: he was uh, twenty eleven to twenty fourteen. Okay. And he loved the job, and we fell in love with Fort Collins.
0: You bought the little farm. Yes,
2: farm. we bought a farm, and I was commuting teaching at Harvard Business School at the oh. time. So every week for 15 or 16 weeks a semester, I headed to Boston and taught class and then came back. And so when Jack first started at CSU, we had horses and our home in Boulder and he was in a hotel in Fort Collins and I was commuting to Boston and it was just crazy. So I agreed in 2012 to decline my appointment at Harvard and help Jack raise money, meet the community, work on the athletic department. work out the horse stalls. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, (laughs) take care of the critters. So uh, I thought I should have something to do too. And I started looking around to find a place to do this little dream I've always had, which was to have a pie shop. So I looked at a bunch of old buildings in Fort Collins. We actually made an offer on a couple of them. It didn't work out. There were many challenges with a lot of the old structures in Old mm-hmm. Town. Yeah, You can't get a grease trap under them. They don't have the power you need. You know, there are so many requirements for restaurants.
0: I actually walked your space uh, oh, did with you? Doug Doan when I wanted ah, to do a restaurant. Yeah. And uh, with John Prouty, who owned yes, it at the time, yes. and, and uh, Doug afterwards. And I was... Bootstrapped, and I had you know, find a. I had to line up every penny I could find to get financed, and and Doug says, "Well, you know, I don't think we're going to take the trouble of doing a full estimate or anything, but somewhere between seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and $7.5 million. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I think I'm going to have to keep yeah. looking."
2: <laughs> yes, well, uh, I wish we had hit that range, but it it definitely you built a fancier place that I was planning. We did a little more. But when we when I couldn't find a building, I, it took me a year and a half. I was looking, looking, looking. And then we heard that the building was for sale. Mm. And that's the problem, the whole story. I fell in love with that old building. Mm. To me, it's very much a memory set. So when we were kids, you know, you'd get in the back of the truck, dad would go to town to the co-op. And that's where farmers talked the weather, commodity prices. Uh, kids run around a co-op is a There's always central, a pot of coffee on it is it's a central part of an ag community and i think it's a fun idea to understand you know it was where commerce happened between townspeople who bought goods and agriculture people who sold goods and that building speaks to me for that reason. It's a part of yeah. how I think of my life growing up. And it's something Fort Collins cares about. They yeah. love that building. <laughs> it's been witnessed to 120 years of history. And that also mattered to me a lot. So we went about the process of investigating. Could we do something? And the idea originally was just the old building. I wanted a little farmer's market garden in the empty lot next to it. And it was gonna be a pie shop, primarily. Right, And uh, unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, the building is on the National Register of Historic Places mm. and the State Register, which means it's highly regulated, what you can and cannot do to that building. Mm. And one of the big constraints is you can't alter the exterior, which means you can't poke holes in it and vent it and all of those things. Oh, wow. And you so it really can't, forbids putting yes. a
0: kitchen or an oven or a bakery yes. or whatever. Yes, all
2: the mechanical electrical plumbing can't go in it. Hmm. And all the commercial kitchens, you can't, like the ADA ramp that's required today for access and hmm. the three-story elevator that we had to put in, we couldn't put in the old building, but you had to have them. And the fire riser room that has to have external access that has to support that old building, but you can't put it in it. And we could just go on. So we were left with the prospect that we had to build an adjacent building that would house all of the modern conveniences and requirements for safety and egress. And it would have to adjoin the old building. And they allowed us to cut one hole in the building. And if you walk in the front door, either place, you'll find that there's a way to pass between old and new. Mm -hmm. And on all three levels, there's only that one opening.
0: So, like, even the heating and stuff is just kind of pushed in from the new side of everything? Yes, That must be a challenge to regulate temperatures You know,
2: the engineering and the architectural work that had to happen to make it possible is remarkable. I still am in awe Hmm. of how they managed to fit it all in. If you walk into uh, the front door of the cafe and you look right to the coffee shop, there's an opening there, that big door. Above and below that door, all of the mechanical, electrical, plumbing, air, everything that runs the old building passes above and below that door and the floors. So it's an engineering miracle, and it's the only way we were ever able to open the old building was to build the new.
0: So give me the specs on the building you've got. A restaurant downstairs yes, and upstairs, and yes. how many square feet? You got it's a bakery,
2: twenty-two thousand square feet. Oh wow! Okay, it's two restaurants: the cafe, which is home cooking, uh, breakfast all day, lunch and dinner; the cash, which is nighttime only, a little more upscale, casual, so steaks and tuna tartar and Lovely. sea scallops and so those good. fun things. And a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence nice. every year we've been open, which I'm very proud of. Then we have three outdoor patios. So the cafe has a patio, Mm -hmm. the coffee shop has a patio, and the cash has a patio, which we've recently put a glass house on top of that can be opened completely but provides some protection. Oh, really?
0: Oh, I haven't been out there yet. Oh, please come. Well, my Rotary Club meets there in the morning, but but of course the the patio is (laughs) open.
2: The windows are closed. And then it also has a teaching kitchen, which to me is the soul of the building. This idea that Three generations, grandmother, daughter, granddaughter make apple pie together or a bridal shower, girlfriends, you know, celebrate together or a bachelorette party. They make their own cocktail or we had a family recently do a five course meal in Paris. It was the grandmother's birthday and she wanted uh, something of big Hmm. memory for her, a meal in Paris and we use it for nonprofit groups. We use it for teaching kitchen classes, public and private, team buildings, fun of all sorts. Uh, we have a bingo night. We have a book club. It's love really it. a place where people can come together, learn, have fun, meet new people. I love it when I see them passing contact information back and forth because that's community building. Yeah, yeah. That's people getting to appreciate each other.
0: I have to say you've really caught traction. Like I feel like it was kind of a new thing, and it was sometimes kind of quiet in there and stuff, maybe pre-COVID. But you guys were faithful throughout the uh, the pandemic kind of season, and, and your your momentum just keeps growing and growing. And the number of groups I see using it and people that are in there every time I go.
2: I'm so glad you feel that way. I mean, obviously, <coughs> it is very important it's about 550 seats and 22,000 square feet. Yeah. So if we don't That'd have, have a lot something, of yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we don't the have mortgage is too high. going on, oh, there's no hope for us. <laughs> and I am just thankful to be open still. Yeah. The last two and a half years have been really difficult on our employees, economically difficult and yeah. stressful with the public's response and the, you know, government intervention and the uncertainty of all of it yeah. has been a very difficult time. So I'm just thankful to be open.
0: Which job is harder? Like the <sighs> the CEO of this turnaround uh, medical technology company or like pulling together this real estate project in a, a, a downstairs restaurant, an upstairs restaurant, a pie shop and coffee shop and...
2: You know, it's such a great question. Obviously, each of them have unique challenges i do believe and this is watching jack too build his own business and i've consulted for a lot of ceos first-time ceos building businesses the challenge with small businesses is you don't have resources so when you run a big company You can assign projects. You can put a team on it. You can hire a consultant. You can get the world's expert. But when you have a small business, it's kind of you and the person in the mirror. (laughs) And that is a unique challenge for survival, especially in the last two and a half years, when you couldn't have guests, you couldn't hire employees, you didn't know if you were open. It's very difficult to imagine what Success looks like Mm. in that framework, Mm -hmm. and so we are very fortunate. We have a core group of employees that have been with us the entire time. Yeah, and I'm so thankful for them. They're amazing. They're dedicated. Kate deserves
0: uh, some props for taking care of us in
2: the mornings. Yes, and it's they're exhausted. You know, they've carried the business the last two and a half years on their shoulders, so they're exhausted. And we're rehiring. So we had 120 employees the day we shut the business. And we laid most of them off. We kept a core group. We fed people. We tried. We had $40,000 worth of food in the building the day we closed. <laughs> so, you know, we we froze it, chopped it. It actually caused some new ideas. That's why we have a ginger and barker menu. We mm. made dog food. <laughs> uh, we started doing home meals to go. That's why we have a taken baker menu. It's mm-hmm. this idea that we were trying to find some way to feed people with the food we had in the building and sustain the business. And so it is uh, very difficult, I think, for any small business owner because you're always the one that has to show up if no one else does.
0: You're the decider. That's it. That's
2: it. But we're blessed with a great team and employees who really care and a very supportive community or we still wouldn't be here.
0: Yeah. Well, we're so glad you are. It's my favorite, or one of my top top oh, few so nice. coffee shops in town for sure. Um, we always talk about faith, family, and politics in this uh, podcast. Is there any of those that you'd like to to take on first? And, Gosh, and just, they're also charge these days as much aren't or they? as little as you'd like to share. I'm not here to get anybody <laughs> in any trouble.
2: Oh well, I definitely believe that faith and family are critical to your core. And good times and bad, uh, you know, sickness and health, all those things you say that faith and family are critical to Jack and I during those times. And we have both been blessed in our professional careers. We both had great parents. And I know not everyone gets to say that. And that, I think, is an enormous blessing in life.
0: Well, and you've had all these diverse experiences with all these leading edge, in many cases, cultural things. Mm -hmm. You're kind of I would say, I mean, you're kind of a, a rural person. I gather that yes. you're a conservative and faith-oriented, but yet you have this love for diverse people groups and even diverse thoughts and lifestyles and things that can't be uh, understated as well.
2: You know, I grew up in a place where a lot of people didn't have an opportunity for education. Hmm. And many, many, many of my high school peers still live in my hometown. Yeah, And it's true that over time, our worldviews have diverged. And I credit that to the chance that I've had to stand on the ground in India and in China and in, a, you know, I've just, I've met people in Rio and in Paris and and their worldview is different than my rural Arkansas worldview. Yeah. And I've learned a lot.
0: Or your Harvard worldview. Or view.
2: my Harvard worldview. And even... Um, As much as all of us, I think, want security and safety and familiarity and comfort, we're human. Uh, Those are not necessarily things that feed your soul. Yeah, You know, that that risk-taking, facing a hardship, dealing with a diverse viewpoint, being somewhere you don't belong and finding out what in you can be part of that system, I think... Those things, at least for me, they feed my soul. Yeah. And I'd like to think I'm a better person because of it and hopefully can contribute in different ways than if I hadn't had those experiences.
0: I like to think of um, kind of the the progressive and the conservative realm of our society as being kind of necessary for one another, kind of like a yin and a yang. sure. If we just wanted to stay Little House on the Prairie, (laughs) we'd be there, and if we let go of everything from the past, then we're probably going to throw ourselves in the chaos that we don't want to You know, Kurt, I think of
2: it about a sunshine. And I felt this way running businesses, too. A lot of people in the healthcare industry think the FDA is difficult or they're too hard. And yes, there have been many times when I felt like the regulators were not unbiased or not scientifically driven. And I don't think that's good for any of us, but I welcome regulation. I welcome a third-party voice at the table in running business. I do believe capitalism unfettered is ugly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our social conscience, our need to be in a community, our interest in others, those are elements of success and sustainability that are very important. So I, I do believe the... The, both sides of the coin, I would say, are critical to our wholeness. I don't support what I would call the extreme position in any field, in any topic, because extremism doesn't seek to learn. Yeah. It doesn't seek to solve. It's punishment oriented. Yeah. It's, it's righteous for a cause as opposed to a purpose. And I personally believe we're worse off. When we appeal to extremes. And that is a tough time for us as a society right now. And I'm hoping we find our way back to talking to each other and appreciating that the world is not one topic or one decision or one cause. The world is humanity, and we're all in it, and we could be better at it.
0: (laughs) Well, and and you're hinting at that, and I think that's one of our common... Notions is the the desire to understand other people's perspectives, and people don't try to understand other people as much as we ought to. I think.
2: Well, and it's easy. It's easy not to want to. Right. <laughs> you know, it's so much simpler if you don't have to listen to that other viewpoint. But I mentioned that book, *Coming Apart*. and One of the things in it that really, uh, I heard the guy speak who wrote it, and he and said who's that? that. Do you remember? Um, no, it'll take me a minute. Okay. I'll think of it. But he talked about the fact that it used to be, and this was true when I was young, that your parents cared a lot about who you married based on their religion. Hmm. We had bias based on religion. Sure,
0: yeah. Catholics and the Lutherans exactly. didn't like each other Don't, where I came you from. Know,
2: and cross-marrying in religion when I was young was unsettling for everyone involved. It caused a lot of problems. And today... His information suggests that the litmus test is what's your political affiliation. Interesting, yeah. And I'm agape and horrified that that would be how we would draw lines. And uh, I'm hoping we as a society can get ourselves out of this corner we've painted ourselves in.
0: Do you have any ideas for that? Like aside from just listening to understand and all that kind of, is there things that, you know, Term limits? Is there uh, oh. whatever? Yeah, you're
2: talking about very little. Yes, I I am an advocate for term limits. I think, you know, this country was built on people serving, uh, not people living Enriching as a themselves. form of employment. <laughs> right. Uh, I think there could be some rational discussion about government servants then not being able to. Uh, make career decisions trading that service afterwards or becoming
0: lobbyists later yes
2: I think there are some things we could do about campaign finance I you know I do feel like uh, there are levers we could pull Uh, redistricting is one of those hot button topics there's a lot of things that we've kind of done that make us more contentious but in the spirit of it in the humanity of it there has to be a willingness yeah to get ourselves back to community discussions that i can respect your opinion and you can respect mine and that's leadership in my opinion yeah, the absence enough. of leadership in those kinds of debates is hurting well, us. Well, yeah,
0: a lot of politicians, they, you know, based on what the surveys are saying and stuff, they tack their sail to that which way the wind is blowing instead of leading and saying this is why I think what I think and here's what we should do.
2: Well, you know, we, we do get the leaders we deserve. And I think <laughs> that's one of yeah. the things we have to be accountable for as a population. Oof, that's hard. And <laughs> uh, I would ask every single person today, have you voted? Because the primaries, very few people vote, very few. The people that are most anxious or most activated about a cause or a topic or an issue. And so when they go to the polls to vote and they're the only ones voting, you accentuate that issue as being the number one thing people are concerned about. But all the rest of us are sitting home going, oh, well, you know, I don't want to have that discussion. And we allow it to happen. Yeah. So I would just implore everyone, be educated and vote and bring that uh, voice to the table. Bring the moderate
0: voices That is out. all
2: of the rest of us who are saying well, there are pros and cons. I know how I feel, but we could talk about it. We should be at the polls, not just the people who won't talk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, This is brushing on political and on your, your career background. But one of the things as we were kind of fast tracking the vaccine for the COVID situation and all that, it made me, and I'm kind of a libertarian leaning, but it made me be like, well, if we can fast-track this in a year, maybe we can take that 15-year timeline off of the throat of all these companies that are trying to innovate and make it so that small companies can maybe once again try to play in this game of of medical or even food, drug, uh, yes. innovation.
2: It's a really important topic. Innovation, by its nature, is messy. And one of the things that I am really sad about with the whole vaccine debacle was – uh, the sausage making that is the pursuit of science and medicine hmm. was put on trial and politicized, in my opinion, during the vaccine process. So the mRNA technology has been advancing for over 30 years. There's enormous learning and technological expertise and data that came to a moment. They're pretty when sure this then, was going to work. When unlimited funding by government yeah. and public sources could take down all barriers and for the global good the fda put that review above all others Mm -hmm. we should all rejoice in that that science and medicine in the face of economic collapse and maybe millions of deaths across the globe could be ready and could find a way to make it happen Actually fast. Actually do a pivot like yes. that. Yes. Uh on the other hand, would you want every medicine that's in pursuit of objective clinical data to be at the top of the list? Well, that's not possible. It's it's not possible that every single medicine Sure. all the timelines get broken and the reviewers review it first. We have to have A rational process. And the FDA is not perfect by a long shot. But it does have peer review. It does have randomized and blinded trials. It does have ethics and what's called uh, investigational review boards, IRBs, that are third-party reviewers. It has many checks and balances built into it. And as a public safety message, you know, I've always been an advocate that Uh, just like you shouldn't buy your medicines on the internet if you don't know where they came from. Why would we want medicines in this country that haven't been reviewed by the body that we believe is our scientific advocate for safety and efficacy? And if we don't believe in that anymore, then let's fix the institution. Let's don't say we don't care about uh, effectiveness or safety. We'll take anything from anybody, just do it fast. We all know we don't want that we don't want to, uh, we don't want our mother to take a medicine that no one knows what it does or where it came from. We don't want to give our children a medicine that we have no confidence in. And that of course is what happens when you go fast. It reduced our confidence. It made us suspicious Mm. of the methods and the means and the intent. And so why would we want to accentuate a system that reduces our confidence in what we believe is a scientific method that helps us be better over time. And I don't want to see that happen because I spent my whole career in human health. Let's don't lose the scientific credibility and the clinical discipline that makes us able to have the most amazing technology in the world to live a longer and healthier life. So
0: you wouldn't say that there's too big of a barrier, that that's Kind of whatever that timeline, that 10 years kind of thing is. Well, it's what really it takes, hard. Kinda. It
2: cost a fortune. It should yeah. go better. But if you're going to give a medicine but we to 100 it, million right? people, wouldn't you want to make sure that you've tested it? Oh, really yeah. Well? No, I, what yeah. I was,
0: I guess my question is more are we. Are we over-testing the rest of the things yes. and, and costing too much if, if we could make one go through that fast?
2: Well, so- your comment about it's always good to have a progressive and a conservative, yeah. I think it's always good to have a tension between speed and safety. And in the world, like when Jack was at CSU, his motto was do both you know, win and be great students. It's it's do it. Don't give up on quality and safety to go fast. Learn to be better at how you do it. And hopefully that's what our commitment is as a society is learn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Learn.
0: I think I've heard a lot of uh, kind of principles of like what might be described as conscious capitalism is that of what informs hmm. kind of you haven't
2: yes i don't think i know that term and its definition i believe capitalism fuels innovation i believe capitalism unconstrained is a recipe for a train wreck big clubs and (laughs) and (laughs) revolutions and all that checks and balances are important and weighing the pros and cons and having a mind for perspectives and needs that are not your own. Those are, to me, human principles that should be employed everywhere in our lives. Friends, family, church, the PTA, you know, the downtown development authority and building Fort Collins, that we ought to sit together and weigh the pros and cons and know that you don't always get what you want, but the discussion will make the decision better.
0: Well, and that's the beauty of, I think, that rural environment that we both share is that it was small enough that you could almost have the whole community in the conversation. Yeah. And as even you know, a city like Fort Collins, 180,000 people or whatever, and only a few of them are dropping in to have the conversation. So get out there and yes. uh, meet Show each up. other for coffee. <laughs> meet with people and have authentic conversations with people that you disagree with. Yeah. And uh, we can do that at Ginger and Baker. Um, your local experience, the craziest experience that you're willing to share with our listeners. Could
2: here be, in Fort Collins? I'll tell you No, that, your, your exper- oh, whatever your oh, whole life,
0: any oh, experience. Wow. Uh, oh, it could be here in Fort hmm. Collins.
2: Well, that's an idea. I have to tell you an experience I've had here in Fort Collins that is so meaningful to me. So the Whitewater Park hmm. was decades in the implementation. Oh, <laughs> yes. And it had, you know, uh, a toxic site. It has all kinds of encumbrances because of the water It's a huge topic for environment and for recreation and for safety and all those things. And the day the Whitewater Park opened, to me, will always ring in my memory because every walk of life of Fort Collins showed up that day. It was a Hmm. beautiful day. All of the powers that be had worked together to make sure that the river had rapids, that there was plenty of water. There were... Uh, families with children in strollers there were people walking dogs there was music on the river uh, a huge community turnout kids everywhere people in the water in kayaks and kids playing there was even a group of people on horseback who showed up <laughs> that day and i felt like this is exactly why we love it here yeah. is everyone can enjoy the natural resources that are present in Fort Collins and we can work together to meet the environmental stewardship, the recreational desires, the economic benefit, the safety constraints. We can Make something happen. Federal government, state government, local government. We can do government. hard things. We can do if we hard put our minds to things. it. Things, and then we all can enjoy it and look at each other and high five and say we did something really hard, but it was worth it. And I love that about Fort Collins, and I just want it to continue.
0: Well. I think that's great. I think that's a great place to end. Um, Ginger, would you care to share like how people can find, we may don't want to have them find you, but find <laughs> G- Ginger and Baker?
2: Definitely, please find Ginger and Baker. It's at 359 Linden. It's the very heart of the new emerging River District in Fort Collins. And we welcome everyone, whether it's with your dog, your computer, your grandmother, your business, your family.
0: Your wedding party.
2: Your wedding party, your team competition, or just to chill out. And and have a great meal we would love to see you at ginger and baker
0: well we're loving seeing you here at the loco think tank offices and thank you so much for being my guest today ginger oh thank you Kurt. it's been a great time
1: thank you for listening to this episode this is alma ferrer producer of the loco experience podcast if you enjoyed this program and would like to support the show please share it with your favorite people and leave us a review To see upcoming guests, behind-the-scenes footage, and more, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at TheLocoExperience. Subscribe to never miss the latest interview, and until next time, stay loco.